everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. And we're your hosts. I'm Greg Knott. I'm Darren Laners. And I'm Bill Hostler. And tonight, we have got a very special treat for you all out there. And I think we can honestly say tonight we have what could honestly be called the dynamic duo of Masonic authors for the 21st century. We have Chris Hodap and Alice Von Cannon, who between them have probably written more Masonic books in our lifetime than pretty much anyone else has done. And Alice has got a brand new book out on her own right now, and we'd like to have her talk about it. Chris, Alice, it's wonderful to have you here tonight. Alice, tell us about your new book. It's called Heart's Blood. It was supposed to come out April the 21st. Now with Amazon, everything's kind of up in the air. We get a new letter from them every day saying what's changed, but... It should be out on the 21st, and it's about Salem, Massachusetts, in the age of sail, and a man who comes home after being five years a slave in Algiers. I read a, an interview, or excuse me, a review of the book online, and the lady who read it said she had actually messed up her law practice because she spent two days reading the book and couldn't actually do anything other than sit and read the book and drink tea. Yeah, she was sweet. She was in Denmark, which blew me away. I thought that was interesting because she knew a great deal about the age of sail, so the subject interested her. Now, are these the characters, Isaac and his wife, are they based on actual people or are they just cloth made out of the composite of other people? They're composites, both of them, but Isaac especially was based on, there are many books out there, but the principal one is called the Barbary Captivity Narratives. It's men who lived through this, men who were slaves, came home and wrote their memoirs. And so, of course, it was kind of a composite of everything that happened. It's kind of an interesting time because there's a, really American history doesn't teach a lot about that time. I and mean, we hear about the, the shores of Tripoli, and that's basically all and all we hear about, maybe well, about their leathernecks, and that's mm -hmm. how they got their name. But, you know, it's really interesting. Now, is this going to be a series, or is this a one-off? Well, this is pretty much a one-off. I've already written a sequel, and it's anybody's guess. The sequel takes place in Napoleonic Paris. But essentially, no, it, it's a one-off. It's a good, sprawling, what did you call it, a sprawling historical epic. Thank you. <laughs> well, it, it definitely sounds interesting. I spent an afternoon trying to download a, an excerpt of it from this website I found it on. And for some reason, Kindle and this website just wouldn't make nice. And I just never could <laughs> get it done. I thought, well, I guess I'll just have to order the paperback from Amazon one day so I to bring out. But... Oh, thank you. I kept the price low just for you. <laughs> you did, too. <laughs> Bless your heart. Because, you know, it's Mason's for cheap. <laughs> What's interesting about the the, the story and, and the period that she wrote about is that, like you say, not that many people know about it, not no. that many people no. teach about it, no, they don't. and it's an unusual period. It's nestled in that range after the Revolution, but before the War of 1812. You think of Salem, Massachusetts, and everybody goes, oh, the witch the trials. Witches. Well, yeah. Salem had a fascinating history all its own. That's that's far was, beyond its little Puritan roots. It was it was still a village. It was very small, population less than ten thousand, but it was the richest city in America. America's first millionaire was in Salem, and all these guys became very wealthy, and their children and their grandchildren became the powerhouse of the Eastern Seaboard. These were the great aggressives the great fighting liberals of New England, and that was what became of their families. Even though most of them, Salem slowly died. In the 1820s and 30s, they had no great river moving inland to carry people west. And so most of them ended up going to Boston, and Salem faded from prominence. But that's where the sea came from. Most of the great eastern seaboard families were out of Salem rather than Boston. Yes, I, I've always heard about the witch trials, and I didn't realize what a cosmopolitan city that became in the next century after mm -hmm. that. Yes, and what was interesting to me was how aware they were of that. 
I wasn't certain if people in the early, the very early 1800s, this is the period that would be the Regency period in London, I wasn't sure if these people were very aware of the witch history, and they were. They, they always had a sore spot about it. They were very aware of it. I think it, it liberalized them. I think that's one of the reasons it was such a liberal place. They were very concerned about that. Religion was a little bit different in Salem than in most places, and Salem was where Unitarianism was born because the Puritan church slowly began to fade and the Unitarians took over. Again, it was a very liberal, very liberal brand of Christianity. And I think that's a lot of the reason. They were, they were very concerned about religion ever becoming a force for evil again. They wanted it to be only good. They were remarkable people. Alice, what caught your interest in this time period? I mean, had you studied it or just randomly <laughs> ran across it and, and, and decided to delve in more? Yeah, I was a fanatic about the age of sale. Um, one of the first books I wrote to get any attention got me an agent, one of three agents <laughs> that I've had over the years. And it was about the War of 1812. I had expected to do about six weeks of research on the age of sale. That's how stupid I was. And it became an obsession. It was such a remarkable period. These men were such remarkable men. I mean, it was wooden ships, but the men were iron. And the things that they accomplished, the things they were able to endure are remarkable, which is another thing most people don't know about Salem, in that in, in their free trade, they were free traders. They, they didn't want colonies. They didn't want diplomatic ties. They just wanted the freedom to trade. And in that freedom and that brazen courage to get out there in rather small ships compared to Britain, they planted America's flag for the first time in China, in Philippines, in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, everywhere. They were just, they had remarkable courage. What's interesting, if you go to Salem today, the Peabody Essex Museum that's there is truly a unique place uh, in yeah. all the United States because it was... It was started by these men Absolutely. coming back from around the world and bringing the things that they found back mm -hmm. home that the Western world had never seen before. And they poured so much of it into the Peabody Essex Museum. And what's interesting today is you go there and they have an enormous uh, Oriental collection there because of the things that they brought back from China and Japan and the Philippines and the Pacific Islands. This was the Age of Enlightenment. This was going to be, you know, this is around 1803, I think, when it got started. This was going to be enlightenment for all men, knowledge for all men, free and open to everyone. And so, again, it was the beginning of that progressivist ideal of enlightenment for all people. So I think you could, I, in my mind, I could make an argument that they were both, in a sense, diplomats early, maybe yes. not officially, but in our mm -hmm. history, entrepreneurs. They were mm -hmm. opening it up our country. They were motivating uh, expanding trade here because I'm sure that caused economic development and beyond just the, the agrarian things that were, you know, so dominant in America at that time. And really, as you say, planting our flag. Mm -hmm. And so this was only 25 years after the American Revolution. So we're, we're exactly. still brand new and, yes. and making our, our case across the world that we're a legitimate democracy. Yes. And we're here to trade with you and learn from you and bring some of your culture back to America. So it was, I think you're right. The Yankees were very liked Yankee seamen who would trade anything. I mean, they, they would, they would deal in anything, but they were very well liked because they were seen as free and open. 
and they didn't have anything up their sleeve. They didn't want to take anybody's land or anything. They just wanted a hard bargain. And, and, and so they were very well liked. And it, and what's interesting too is that the, in those early years, there were two political parties that really weren't particularly American in many ways. The Federalists looked to Britain as a model and the Democratic Republicans looked to France. And so for a lot of people in towns like Salem, the politics of London and Paris were what people battled over rather than exactly our own politics. But that was why Jefferson eventually, uh, and this is a little bit down the road, put together an embargo because it was dangerous. As as these men went out to sea, a British ships would just stop them, bully them. They wanted to see if there was any quote-unquote contraband aboard, which was anything going to France. And the French had some shenanigans of their own. So once again, they were they in, in attempting to be free, free trade and sailors' rights. That was the battle cry of 1812. In attempting to be free, they had to face a, a lot of very powerful, very powerful governments. And we were very small, but we won. Another Always. aspect of the story is the character of Isaac is is taken captive by the by the uh, mm-hmm. the Arabs in Barbary. And again, you're at that strange period because the United States is a new country. It's split from England and the English, they had their own treaties going with, with the Barbary states that were protecting their sailors. And after the war ends, they decide to inform the Barbary pirates that all these Americans, they're not British anymore. They're not under our protection. So all bets are off with them. And suddenly these, uh, the American ships start getting captured and held hostage. And the character of Isaac is among one of those crews that gets captured and, and kept for five years. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Americans had to have something called a Mediterranean pass in order to trade there. And after the revolution, when we were a free country and no longer British, there, there, there were forgeries floating around, but essentially we no longer had the pass. And when the day of Algiers found out that we were in his waters and we no longer had the protection of the British, and he got lots of money in tribute every year from the British, and he feared and respected the British. But when he found out we were no longer under their protection, uh, they roared out and they started taking American ships. It was a difficult situation that neither Jefferson nor Adams nor much of anybody else knew how to cope with. That's why our first wars in that 15-year period we're all with Barbary until finally in 1815, Decatur closed it out and we defeated them. The first nation to do so. We were not going to pay tribute. We were going to have free passage in the Mediterranean. That's what the war was about. And so it helped establish our legitimacy. Very much so. Very, very much so. Because we did what the Europeans wouldn't do. Wouldn't or do. Couldn't, or exactly. Couldn't do. Exactly. Right. And we created a and lot so- of heroes at the same time. As you describe that, I'm thinking of current day events, not necessarily the, the COVID stuff, but it's funny that they were, they absolutely have set the stage for how we react to mm-hmm. foreign entities today. Very much so. Uh, but, yeah. Very much. We'll, we'll challenge you, but uh, we don't want your land, but we, we just want free and exactly. open trade. I think it was a Masonic ideal with these guys. All of these early American military officers, naval officers, and even merchant captains. They were all Freemasons, and they took that Freemasonry to see them. Every time I would read about another great figure of of the early American Navy, which which was a powerhouse, it was changing the world. It was changing the way other countries dealt with their seamen because they saw it working in our Navy and started doing it in theirs. 
And all of these guys were Freemasons. I can't find one. Maybe John Rogers, who defended Baltimore in War of 1812, is the only one who was not provably a Mason, but his father and his brother were. I suspect his papers have only been lost. So it was a remarkable enlightenment at sea that these guys, all of these, both merchant and naval captains, embodied at sea. Alice doesn't really use it in the course of the story, but oh, I it's to. fascinating. <laughs> she really wanted to. It's fascinating to read the histories of both Essex Lodge in Salem mm-hmm. and Marblehead Lodge, which is a philosophic lodge yes. in Marblehead, in Marblehead yeah. both of which are still alive and kicking today. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them have fascinating histories and mm-hmm. incredible people who were involved in those lodges in those early years. Yeah. That's really something because, you know, us Midwesterners here in Illinois and Indiana, Darren and I are in a lodge that began in the 1850s. And here we're talking a lodge that was probably a hundred years before that and Mm -hmm. was having all that early influence in the colonies and later the states. And really, Mm -hmm. as we've said, shaped the very foundation with which we live today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And especially in northern Indiana, many of the people who came to settle northern Indiana yeah, Southern Indiana had a lot of British prairie stuff going on. It was rougher country. But in northern Indiana, you had a lot of New Englanders who who crossed the Cumberland Gap and came and settled northern Indiana. So that New England influence was carried here and on into Illinois as well. So you have both done numerous projects together that I find very interesting that your careers, of course, I know more about Chris because I've been in our circles more, but as I've read your bios and things, that it look like to me they tend to complement one another. Mm-hmm. Could you describe how do you how do you work together? What projects in the past have you done together? And early on, the very first project that that came across the transom was Freemasons for Dummies, mm-hmm. and just because of the very nature of the book and the way the Dummies people work, a lot of people don't realize it, but the day you sign the contract clock starts and you have precisely three months to finish the book and you don't get to say okay fine i'll call you in three months and deliver it no you have to deliver it in thirds every six weeks so consequently uh that first book was written in total hysteria and so but it was written all by chris i mean he sat down and just pounded it out i was he had never done a book before not a a book link I was just staggered as he started handing me off the chapters how good it was. But I really relied on her. I said, here's what I need. I need your help in the general history aspect. When I talk about the history of the fraternity, I want to know the historical background, what was going on in England at the time, some of the the philosophical movements that were leading up to it, because I was just overwhelmed at that point. The clock was ticking. And as a matter of fact, we left that historical chapter. It was I think it was just about the last chapter we turned in. And so I really relied on her for that. And so I'm madly trying to put this together. And she's walking in, handed me chapter pages and saying, here, take, take a look at this. And I'm handing her back pages saying, here, read this. How did I phrase this? And so it's it's complementary researcher, editor, trade-off, writing. And, and so... That was the first book. The second Dummies book, the second and third Dummies book. And there was supposed to be a fourth, too. Yeah. The, the third was supposed to be two books, and they slammed it into one. The Templar Code for Dummies, with that ridiculous title, oh, was supposed to start out as the Da Vinci Code for Dummies. Right. And then 
the legal department got involved. And then we said, well, you know, why don't we just make it more generic and make it talk about secret societies? And as when they said, well, no, we really want to do Knights Templar too. We'll make it two books. And then all of a sudden it goes from one book to two books in a space of less than a year. They were working us to the point that we'll test a marriage. I mean, they were working us. We missed two Christmases in a row. At many points, you'd wake up and it's 4 o'clock and you're not sure if it's a.m. or p.m. You're working the clock around, sleeping seven hours and starting again. And at the same time, Chris was promoting Freemasons for dummies out on the road, and I'd take over the writing when he was gone. And we were running a small apartment complex. So at that point, it's like, He's going to have a stroke. (laughs) This can't go on. It was a test. It was a trial of of patience, endurance, and being able to say, okay, let's not yell anymore. Let's just forget it. Start all over again. Pick up. Start all over again. But the plus side is that because we wind up becoming conversant in each other's research projects, and we help each other working on these research projects over the years and different projects, we're always handing off each other articles and oh, yeah. finding books for each other and saying, hold it, have you thought about this? And so it's, it's sort of a joint learning and joint writing and joint thinking process that goes on around here. So not only have you written uh, these books together, but I was digging through your IMDb and you've done a lot of work for television together. I know, Chris, your background is in film and television. One particular thing that caught my eye is that both of you worked on a little indie horror film called Backwards back in the 80s. Please, dear God, say you've seen it. I've, I've not. I was actually, since I am a fan of horror, and I think the 80s is pretty much the high watermark for for horror films, so I was wondering, is it worth my time? Only movie I know about a geek is the life yeah. story. I didn't yeah. know what a geek was until yeah. I went to work on that film. Yeah. It's one of the finest two horror movies made about guys that bite the heads off a of chicken. <laughs> the other being, of course, with Tyrone Powell. Oh, God. So we're, so we're, we're Nightmare, right it's so, Nightmare Alley. So, so, so to be honest, with that kind of barometer, we're in pretty good, you know, we're in the, we're in the same batting cage with, with Tyrone Power, so that's okay. Well, that's another one where you're working uh, around the clock, and yeah. I was just a, I was just a gopher. You're standing in the mud at four o'clock in the morning, uh, helping three other guys hold up an HMI light saying, tell me again how glamorous this is. Yeah. I'm having such a good time. No, but we've been together with that since, I mean, think about it. We've been together since Chris was 17. And I was 18. We went to college together. And I think your interests grow together. So even though it was film then, we were both always interested in history. So as film in Indiana began to peter out and there just wasn't as much work as before, it was an easy slide into something we'd always adored. We're the kind of people that when we went on vacation, first thing we did was look for the nearest ruin. Yeah. I mean, that was fun for us. Yeah. I mean, the, the first time we went on an international trip, you know, we were, we were in our 30s and it's like, Ah, we just come into some money. I, for the first time in my life, I have three weeks of paid vacation. We'll never have money again. again we'll never be able. able to travel ever again. Oh my God, what do we do with this once in a lifetime opportunity? Where do you want to go? And so she said, well, I always want to see Egypt. And I said, well, I always want to see England. So we took three weeks, did 10 days in Egypt and then 10 days in England and saw more on those two aspects of that same trip mm-hmm. than we have 
in subsequent years combined. And I still don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend it, but, but, you know, we were always looking for yeah, we were. ruins and, and historic. I mean, when we, the first time we went to England, we made a, a deal that we were only going to uh, stay in castles. Right. It's just what was fun know, for, for us. hotel rooms. Yeah. And so just when you're together this long, I mean, face it, we're on our third bottle of Tabasco sauce. <laughs> so. So your interests kind of grow together, even if they didn't start that way. I, I wasn't interested in going to film school. But when I went to college with him, I just, I'd always love movies. Who doesn't love movies? But I drifted into it because when you live together and you like each other and it, you just sort of, you end up sharing interests a lot of times even when you didn't really intend it. I became a Freemason because, not because of my family, but because of her father. True. When you're together this long... I know. You, that's, you grow together. That's what I always tell people who, who say, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a divorce. What's the secret of a happy marriage? And there is no secret. It's endurance. You, you get <laughs> it's through, endurance. You know, you get through the times when you just can't stand the sight of each other. You just endure. There is no other secret because the light will come back again sooner or later. You just hang on. There, in, in our parents' generation, marriages of long standing were, were fairly ordinary, but they were also admired. I, I think they still are, maybe. I'm not sure what few are out there. But that's that's the only ticket just hanging on. That's all that matters. I mean there's a certain amount of comedy today when they talk about, you know, the long standing Hollywood <laughs> no, marriage. Six that, years. That's like six years. You know, yeah. Six years, are you yeah. kidding? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, will you explain to the people I don't know how many people actually know how you got into in, into Freemasonry. I've always thought that was a really neat one of the neatest ways that somebody's actually discovered the craft. And in fact it I actually I don't think you know this, but I actually one of my stories I wrote was Kind of loosely based on your on your experience. Will you explain to the people how you did become a Freemason? Sure. I've told this story a hundred times. I put it in the dummies book and I tell it every opportunity I get. I tell it to Masons because you never know how you're going to do something that'll touch people in ways that you never expect. I didn't know anything about Freemasonry. The only touches I had of, with Freemasonry were seeing murder by decree in the 1980s and hearing the term here and there, but I didn't know what it was. And uh, uh, Alice's father had been a 50-plus year Freemason. He had joined here up in Indiana, out in Terre Haute, and then he decided he and his wife retired to Texas uh, when they were in their 60s, and they lived down in Texas. Uh, after many years, most of their friends, he had hundreds of friends up here, but most of their friends is after they retired, were down in Texas. So Vera, his wife, passed away first, and then Bob died a little less than a year later. And so we decided to have the funeral down there because that was where the bulk of their friends were. So Alice and I go down, and we're in a hotel room uh, late on a Sunday night, and the funeral is on Monday. And Alice, it's like 7 o'clock at night, and Alice says, you know, Dad was a mason. I think they do some kind of funeral service thing or something. I, said, well, I don't know. I don't know the first thing about it. So I picked up, in those days you still had phone books, and I picked up the Dallas phone book, which is about four inches thick, and I started flipping through it looking for Masonic Lodge. And I literally called every Masonic Lodge I could find in the phone book, and I finally found, God love Lodge Secretaries. I found a Lodge Secretary working late on a Sunday night. And I told him the situation, and he said, wow, this is awfully short notice. I don't know if there's anything I can do. Give me the details and I'll see what I can do, but I'm not making any promises. So we go to the funeral home the next morning and we had gotten the, the biggest room they had at the funeral home because we knew those hundreds of friends were going to show up and nobody came. 
there was us, there were a couple of neighbors and that big empty room and a rented minister. And nobody else came. But I'll tell you what, 10 Freemasons showed up. 10 Masons who didn't know him, didn't know the first thing about him, didn't call the Grand Lodge of Texas to find out if they could do that for an Indiana Mason, didn't bother the family to go through the dead man's wall to make sure he had a paid-up dues card. All they knew was that the family of a Freemason called late on a Sunday night one of their help. And they put on a funeral service that was far more moving than anything the rented minister said, who kept mispronouncing his name. And when it was all over, they stood in the back of the room and they waited. And as we were leaving, they said, here are our names. Here are our phone numbers. We know you're from out of town. Things are going to come up that you're going to need help with. You call us if there's anything we can do because we're here to help you. And the next day on the flight home, I looked at Dallas and said, that's something I got to be a part of. And that's how I joined the fraternity. Prior to that, I had no real contact with it at all. And I think the Dummies book is, I know, influenced a lot of people in terms to inform them about who we are and inspire them to join. So I just think, what's the luck of that secretary being there on that Sunday night? Countless other people that have said, well, I read your book, so I joined the fraternity. Greg, that's exactly right. Think of that. That secretary picking up that phone that night and responding, the story of that secretary and Bob's funeral has been read by at least 160,000 people who have picked up that book. Very powerful. So that's why I tell everybody, that's why we have to be the best we can be all the time. I know I've been to several funeral, Masonic funerals. And a matter of fact, that's how I first got interested was one of my great uncle's funeral. and especially when you've not seen it, it is so impressive that people come in and it's it's so moving. And even to this day, when I see the, the Illinois version of it done, the families are, they're just in awe. And I, I there's not a better public engagement or a public outreach tool than we have than that last tribute to a, to a brother. So thank you for telling that because I I've heard you tell it many times, and I never get tired of hearing you tell it, because to me, it's a very, very powerful story, really about both of you. Alice, the fact that you, you've mentioned it to, to Chris to begin with. I think it's interesting that in those days, right at that period of time, so little was known about the Freemasons. I was I was doing some research for a paper. I called my dad once and said, this was back, what, maybe 1985, something, and I asked him, Dad, What's a Freemason? Tell me about Freemasonry. And I was always daddy's favorite, and there was nothing he would do for me. And he said, I can't tell you about that. And I was a little unsettled by the answer, and I just kept at him. Dad, come on, you can tell me what they are. You can tell me something. No, I can't. After about five minutes, I said, Daddy, put Mom on. And Mom, he won't talk to me. And she said, no, Alice, he won't talk to you about that. And and I had told my father all that was available in the library was a reprint of Duncan's ritual that was just traveled. There were no books at all telling me what a Freemason was. There was, I think there was one paragraph in the encyclopedia. I was against the wall. And I think it's a shame that now uh, there's more fame for the streets of, of Washington, maybe. But with Chris's book out, are there, are there really devil symbols in the streets of Washington? That's not a fame I like to see. But Chris's book and many others are such a great counter to that. People nowadays, the information's there. You can find out what a Freemason is, what they stand for. The comical part about about her dad was when she said, look, Dad, I picked up a copy of Duncan's Ritual at the bookstore. 
And he was livid. He said, oh, he's they mad. shouldn't be allowed to sell books, sell like, books that. like that. So had he lived, I would probably be a great disappointment. <laughs> uh, no, he'd no, be proud. <laughs> Chris, I've seen you, you've, and, and Alice, you brought up the point, you know, so much more now is written and, and known. But Chris, on several of your blog posts over the years, you've kind of analyzed how we've disappeared off Main Street. And for a variety of factors that and I 100% agree with all that you've written about this, we've kind of been our own worst enemy in some ways that we've disappeared from the lexicon in terms of Main Street, but yet you go to Barnes & Noble and can find us on the bookshelf. Where do you see, either one of you, where do you see us going down the road? And and for me, it's not so much a, a numbers issue as it is, where is our relevance in society today? Well, and that's really, that's really the key question here. If, if we wind up being reduced to the size of a national group of oriental tea cozy collectors, <laughs> that's fine as long as we retain the reputation that we once had and we haven't done that. And that's what concerns me more than anything else. On the one hand, it's easy to, to assuage our own guilt and say, it's not our fault. It's happened to everybody. It's the bowling alone syndrome. Putnam found it 20 years ago, and it's the church groups, and it's the PTAs, and it's the card clubs, and everybody's falling down the same hole, and it's not our fault, so that's okay. But it isn't okay. It isn't okay because we've let our own membership and our own leadership lapse. We've thrown over the idea of really trying to attract the men who are the best leaders in our communities. And a lot of guys will rear up and say, you know what, you're you're just being an elitist. You know, mm -hmm. you, you just want to be a blue stocking mason and, and that's just snobbery. But no, it isn't that because we don't have the leaders who became the Harry Trumans anymore. We're not attracting the guys in our communities that start the local the business, that run the local foundations, that are the head of the school boards or on the city councils. We don't attract those guys anymore. And that's a problem. And I'm not sure how we get that back. And nothing frustrates me more than guys who want to, you know, sit around and write our epitaphs and endlessly examine, you know, what's wrong with the fraternity? Yes, we do. We know what's wrong with it. That doesn't get us any nearer solution. I don't know what the solution is. I just know that this is why what we do in our meetings is so important. This is why what we do in our communities is so important. We made a mistake when we fled the main streets in our towns and, and fled out to the suburbs and and hid in tin sheds and generic buildings. We lost our place in the community and lost our place in society, and we fell off everybody's just internal community memory. You say Freemason today, and people have a vague notion of that. They don't know what they did. They've heard the name. Scottish Rite Northern Jurisdiction has spent an awful lot of money and an awful lot of resources doing all kinds of social research about uh, the way Freemasonry is perceived by people. And people have a good perception of fraternity. They don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, we're not associated with, we haven't been hit with things like the Catholic Church scandals and the Boy Scout scandals and that kind of stuff. So people have 
no opinion of us. It's just, I haven't heard anything bad about them. So yeah, they, yeah, they're sort of, yeah, they're kind of important. It's this hazy nether world that we inhabit in people's self-conscious. But that's not the same as being an institution that's admired anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest with you, there aren't a lot of institutions that are admired anymore. That's, that problem is society wide. And, and, and it frustrates me every day because I don't know how to get that back. And you're right. They don't deal with the incessant carping negativity that they have in places like Britain. I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, you're one up there. Yeah, we're one up on our European brethren because we don't deal every day with the front page headlines of Freemason arsonist <laughs> sentenced to 20 years. You know, high ranking free, Freemason. High, rank, high ranking Freemason <laughs> foot fetishist. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, sentenced to community service. This inbred hatred of Freemasonry, we don't deal with that in the United States. So in that respect, we're fortunate as hell. But I don't know how to recapture what we had in terms of public perception of us. And the public had that perception back when we were very small in the 1820s uh, there's that famous quote out of uh, the Farmer's Almanac that talks about all the admirable things that a Freemason is in the 1820s. Well, John Bizek's book captures that really well. The the fact that they wanted Masonic influence on the frontier because they wanted to civilize the frontier. And I really, I can't recommend John Bizek's oh, book enough, absolutely. Island Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it, you really need to because it's vital to understand the position that Freemasonry had in people's minds in the early 1800s out here on the edges of the frontier. And the attitude that the Grand Lodges back east had of using Freemasonry to civilize a rough and rugged bunch of people out on the frontier and to teach them how to operate this democracy that had been built for them. Because if you didn't teach a bunch of backwoodsmen how to operate a democracy, they'd all be shooting each other out in the street over an argument over who stole somebody's cow. And so the the desire of the Grand Lodges back east in places like Virginia and Massachusetts was go forth and teach civilization to people that don't have any. Well, and it was Bizak's point that it was one of the things that held the nation together in the face of that very dicey period with, uh, with Aaron Burr and all the attempts of Spain to take the, the West away from Eastern United States to, to make another sort of empire out of it. And the Freemasons wanted to keep them adhering to the principles of the United States. And it worked beautifully. So I, what I hear you both saying, and I completely agree, at least in my analysis of it is because we don't attract those great leaders, and and they don't have to be president of the United States. Like you said, it's just your local Main Street leaders. We've also, in some some fashion, are not practicing democracy like we did at our origination point. And it's not just us we've lost, but the one thing I will say about a boring meeting is you're still practicing democracy because you're voting on things and making motions and creating ideas from the floor, that's the very heart of what we do. And that's why we're important to civilization, to a civilized society, in my view. Yeah, you're making motions from the floor. You're voting on it, but you're arguing civilly with somebody. 
you may have a very passionate uh, hatred of something that somebody else is proposing, but in a lodge room, you're not throwing bricks at each other. You're arguing it back and forth. And then at some point, somebody whacks the gavel and says, okay, we're taking a vote. And you, I'm sorry you lost. And you move on to the next thing. You go down and you have dinner together. You read about the accounts all throughout the, the 19th and 20th centuries of when you had heavy hitter politicians who were in the same Masonic lodges who were on, on opposite sides of the political point. But they got along just fine in lodge. And a lot of times they'd hammer out compromises socially that way. And that has gone missing now. Politics as blood sport is, is what's, what's ordinary now. It's, and that ties behind the scenes that used to bind these guys together. And Masonry was one of them. It seems to have gone missing. And as such, it's, it's become worse. The grudge matches get ugly and personal. They, they can no longer seem to be able to rise above that. But there's a there's a wonderful yeah, about a third of a book uh, by a guy named Yuval Levin and uh, it's called A Time to Build and I just finished it recently and he talks about the death and destruction of our institutions uh, just society wide you know I don't care what what side of political aisle you're on what side of philosophical or social aisle you're on what has died in the United States is the admiration for institutions of all kind. And he talks about something that's really disturbing, which is people that, that seem to get all the press and get all the attention are the people who say, I'm an outsider. I'm a maverick. I, I, you get elected to Congress and then you spend the rest of your time here in Congress standing up and telling everybody how you're not really like all the rest of those people in Congress because it's almost like, I don't want to be associated with this club I just joined. And it's a strange phenomenon that's happened, and it's happened all over. Uh, it, it's happened throughout Western society in every kind of institution you can think of. And it's really a disturbing thing. And you'll talk to people, and they say, well, I have the Groucho Marx attitude, or I wouldn't belong to something that would have me as a member. Ah, it's like, that isn't funny anymore. It's a disturbing trend. And the Freemasons sort of, became that as well. You ask people, have you ever thought about joining the Freemasons? No, I'm not really a joiner, you know. I, I, why the hell not? Why aren't you a joiner? Well, and part of the onus is on us that when you do finally get somebody who's like a local judge or the guy that owns the hardware store or the guy that's on the city council to join your lodge, and if he shows up, what he gets are three meetings talking about the toilet that still isn't fixed. you got a problem. Because he won't come back. That has to be fixed at our end. We have to figure out a way to elevate what we do and what we talk about and what we think about beyond that kind of nonsense. But this is cultural, too. I mean, I belong to an organization called RWA, the Romance Writers of America, that was the largest organization of writers, a trade organization, sort of a union, uh, sort of a, an aiding and abetting. And just in the last couple of years, it's been torn apart politically in a way that's just tragic. I mean, it's outsiders are laughing. The New York Times is laughing. RWA did not expect to end up on the on the front page of the New York Times. It's an organization that had 10,500 members in November, and it's lost about 3,000 members already because of an internal blow up over political nonsense. It's, yeah, it's, it's essentially political. And because people can't 
disagree politically anymore in a civil fashion, it again, it becomes savage. It becomes blood sport. And what's happened in RWA recently is incredibly ugly with Euro racist, Euro racist, Euro sexist, Euro sexist. We're canceling the awards, et cetera, et cetera. You stand back and watch it and it's just, it's tragic. But to watch these people feasting on each other and destroying what was a vibrant organization founded by a black woman and it's, it's being torn apart. And that does seem indicative. This is culture wide. And what's so heartbreaking is when you consider, again, you understand so much if you know your own history. In the history of Freemasonry, you look back into France in the 1740s. Margaret Jacob writes about this in one of her books, in Living the Enlightenment, I think, mm -hmm. where uh, the French authorities bust open a Masonic meeting and they report back to the king their horror over the fact that you had merchants sitting in the room with petty nobility and local landowners and, and, Jews. and Jews and a black trumpeter from right. the palace all sitting in a Masonic lodge. And the most horrifying thing they were doing was voting for their own leadership. And that was worthy of busting up the meeting and shutting it down. So we take this stuff for granted today. And that's a shame because taking it for granted, you lose sight of what we're all here supposed to be doing in the first place. So let me let me ask you both about today, and I want Darren or Bill to chime in too. But th with the current COVID stuff, I don't want to get so deep into COVID. But what I wonder is, building on what you both said about how we've just kind of these these organizations declined, is the fact that everybody's staying at home. And then when we come out of this, people are going to be nervous about being in groups or clubs or whatever. How do you think post-COVID is going to impact groups like Freemasons and, and other uh, associations? Yeah, It's a negative impact. There's no question that this it's, is an incredibly negative it's, event. It's a negative impact, but I, I don't know. Maybe my view of it is lopsided in the fact that I think that uh, – People have a tendency to do what they've always done, and the fracturing of things has been on a slow decline anyway. I don't think this will speed it up. I worry that more people will decide that doing Zoom meetings is an effective way to replace in-person meetings. I don't, I don't like that. I've never liked that. Weren't we distant enough? Yeah, we were distant enough. That worries me. But I don't think that's necessarily going to affect things like Masonic Lodge meetings. I think we're too busy living the moment right now to have any real objectivity about what's really going to happen. I think all of this is being overplayed Very for sensationalism so. in terms of, of the press reaction and the way that you're supposed to be reacting. So I, that doesn't worry me. But it's the in-person stuff that people are going to get used to that I, that worries me. Well, yeah, because it's like you talked about, the book about the effect iPhones are having on teenagers. I'm an historian. You can't frighten me until an essential human behavior begins to change. She was pointing out the fact, for example, that teenagers dating is very much on the decline. Teenagers dating rituals, the first time we went to the pyramids in the 80s, what did we see? We saw girls walking around the pyramids and boys in cars driving in the circle around them. And it was just part of that 
ritual that, that you see in every culture, you see everywhere you go, boys want to meet girls, girls want to meet boys. And when that starts to decline, you do have to kind of look up and say, we are too much internal, we're too much in our homes, we're too much in ourselves, when something that essential begins to change. That's a heads up. I bore people like crazy. I sit around, <laughs> I read crazy things like uh, Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, where he's trying to look for causes and effects. And it's like searching for the first domino that started to tip the whole thing off. It, that's always an arbitrary starting point. You know, where, which thing do you pick? I have a tendency to pick the creation of the birth control pill, which led to this cascading effect of changes in families, changes in working situations, changes in family size. Family sizes have done nothing but decrease and decrease over the last three generations. So you have this situation that's never occurred in society before of more and more kids are single kids with a single parent mm -hmm. and generally not a father. Now, how are you going to transmit Freemasonry to those kids? Because they have no tradition. Now you're in like second and third generation of single family households where you have no real male heritage to inherit from grandpa sitting there on, on the edge of the park bench telling his grandson about when he joined his Masonic Lodge. You don't have that anymore. But there are also other societal things that are happening, too, because family sizes have shrunk down, where the average now is less than two kids to a household, so it's frequently a single kid. You've got no brothers and sisters to learn how to get along with. Brothers and sisters are who teach you how to get along with people more than anybody else in your life. Otherwise, you'd kill each other before you were four. And that's being lost. And so all of these things add up over time, and all of it has contributed to the shrinkage of Freemasons. You can say, we're not, again, I'm not conceited enough to believe we're the only ones affected by this, because we're not, not by any stretch of the imagination. But things like the loss of church attendance and the loss of, of religious traditions and family, whatever you think of organized religion, I don't know and I don't care. Point of the matter is, it's not being passed along from one generation to the next. And we're an organization that demands at least even the vaguest belief in a supreme being, even if somebody doesn't want to define it for themselves. Now you've we're to that stage of having these people who are coming and saying, well, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious. Well, they don't even know what that means because they don't come from a faith tradition. Their parents don't come from a faith tradition. Their grandparents don't come from a faith tradition. And that was the bedrock of what formed our fraternity in the first place. Well, but realize, too, uh, church has been under assault before. A lot of what's happening now is, you know, you read it and it's pure 1789. It's pure yeah. Jacobin. It's pure Parisian. There's nothing odd about that. But I do think masculinity is under assault as a concept, as an ideal I mean, you don't give people a copy of Rudyard Kipling's If anymore in their birthday bag. It's just not done. Well, I did it, but mostly yeah, it's not done. Do we're probably warping my nephew. Because <laughs> we're, we're heaping all these expectations on him because, like, he's sort of the last hope we've got. <laughs> but that's definitely true. As a masculine organization, an organization of men in Britain, I've, I've watched the leaders, the Masonic leaders, going on television, which is, you know, going right into the enemy's arena, you know, and they're attempting to defend something 
it's under assault, the whole idea that as a man, certain things are expected of them as part of a masculine ideal is very much under assault. So that makes it difficult to survive as an organization. Well, the answer to that is we need to make sure we develop a pretty hard shell mm. and stop apologizing for it. I mean, when I'm down at our Masonic Library and Museum and, and we get college students who come in and, you know, they want to try and make a sidelong attack over the fact that we don't let women in, it's like I have no problem explaining why we don't and why men need their own places to be men without the influence of women being around. We need to have those kind of environments, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because there's no force on earth. I mean, talk to Karen Kidd. There's no force on earth stopping women from building their own Freemasonry. They just don't seem to have a particular interest in that. No one's stopping them. That's something that I talk about. I'll tell you, if, if you've read my blog over a lot of years, you'll see a recurrent theme that I have, which is the English do this right. The English don't apologize for the fact they don't let women in. Their first answer is, oh, yes, there are two Grand Lodges of women based right here in London. Uh, we don't let women in, but they do. Here's their address. Can we call you a cab? Instead of having the instant shields up that most American Masons do, which is, that's clandestine. No, women can't be Masons. All well, stuff. France does the same thing. Masonry amongst French women is very vibrant. They're very yeah. proud to be Freemasons. And, and they have more of them than in Britain. Yeah, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the Masons in France are women. So when in the United States, we never developed that same kind of attitude here, which is, yes, it exists. Yes, that's fine. If, if women want to go and do that, more power to them. Knock yourself out. They're just not joining our group, but that's fine. We don't have that attitude here. We developed the Eastern Star, which is not the same thing. It's not a substitute. So I don't know what we do about that. Now, in all fairness, female Freemasonry has never been real popular in the United States. It just, for whatever reason, it, it never took off here and certainly isn't taking the world by storm now. That's not an insult against them. It just hasn't. But it's just an interesting difference in the cultures and in, and in the, the way different countries handle it. So what what's next on you guys' radar for projects or what else you got coming up? I'm going to be standing in front of the mall that's closed wearing a sandwich board saying, buy my book. I'm afraid <laughs> I had a I had a whole sequence of events set up over the course of the summer and into the fall that were events to huckster the book. And of course they've all been canceled. So now I'm desperately trying to figure out how do I do this on computer? You can only do so much on computer. I'm, I'm trying my best, but I don't know. I may end up going door to door. Yeah. We're trying to figure out if we can sneak them into like DoorDash bags and stuff. <laughs> but it, it's funny. We, we never know. I, I think Greg talked about the uh, the TV projects. We never know when the phone's going to ring on those. Oh, yeah. Who knows if those come along? I always keep threatening to write another book, and I never seem to have the time. I'm involved in so many things, I never sit down and actually do it, even though I've been amassing material. I think I sat down and figured out I got 2,500 blog entries uh, on the on the website. Well, I had him pretty much convinced to do a book on Masonic architecture and maybe start from a regional basis out west, and I was going to press much harder when we got back in the Airstream and left, and now there's nowhere to go, and yeah, we, we can't can, get the Airstream. We can't go anywhere. <laughs> we 
really appreciate you being on tonight. Darren or Bill, do you have anything else you want to run by them? I just have one thing, and it's just more out of general curiosity. I know both of you have appeared on numerous television shows, and I'm just curious, do you watch the episodes after you film them? Not as a rule, but I love this story. When when Chris had the cancer surgery, and it was rough, he'd already had one major surgery. He never talks about this, but I'm here. I get to talk about it. And the second surgery was rough. It was scary. It was 14 hours long. And they sent me home. Unlike the previous hospital, they wouldn't let me spend the night with him. And I was furious. But you don't take on the nuns. You just, when they tell you to leave, you leave. I came home and I sat on the edge of the bed and I didn't know what to do. And it's like, don't sit here and cry. Just turn on the TV and forget about this. And you'll go to sleep and you'll go back to the hospital in the morning. There's nothing you can do. Swear to God, I turned on the TV and there he was. It was, it was an omen from God because no, we don't watch this stuff. So it's very strange. It was fun. I live forever in rerun. <laughs> yes, you do. It's sort of, it's sort of comical. The two of us, the two of us, we've been in enough of these over the years. I can sort of track my health changes <laughs> over the years. You know, oh look, that was when I weighed three hundred pounds. The curling oh, hair, the curling hair was the chemo. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh look, that was when I was having the weird drug interaction. I couldn't hear myself talk and was pacing fourteen hours a day. But you always look great, kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, in all fairness, there was a series that was done for the American Heroes Channel. It was done by a British um, production company. And they called us both, and they wanted us both, and it was talking about secret societies. And they had us do, my God, it was four weeks of research before the crew got here. And they, they sent us reams of questions, and they clearly wanted to use us as part of this central core of interviews they were going to do. And we set it up to shoot in the Scottish Rite Cathedral here. And they got here, and I was having this bizarre medicine reaction that was, I, I was, I was going out of my mind. I was literally going out of my mind from the medicine. And a couple of weeks later, they got me off the medicine, and things changed in a matter of days. But at the time, the film crew showed up. They shot, I'll never forget, they were shooting a, it was a sequence about uh, Renla Chateau. For some reason, I'm yelling into the camera. If you see it, you'll know the one I'm talking about. I'm yelling into the camera like I can't hear or something. And then after they were done asking those questions, it was about 25 minutes, and I finally went, that's it, I can't stand it. And I got up and started madly pacing the room, and they suddenly looked helpless, like, you mean to tell me we flew all the way from England, we get 25 minutes with this lunatic, and that's it? <laughs> so I said, Alice, sit down, you can do the rest of it. And they did. I was horrified. She I was, was there to be Chris's gopher. I was not prepared to go on TV for the next three episodes. I was not prepared for this. And she wound up uh, carrying the interviews for the other three or four episodes of the show, and she did an incredible job, and that's that's, that's the benefit of the two of us being conversant in each other's research. That's true. And so it wasn't easy for her to plop down and, and do it, but she did it, and it wound up being central to all of the episodes of the show, and the only thing she's concerned about is that she thought the close-up was too tight. So, you know. Well, they might know. they might not have tried to shoot my nose here. It wasn't very kind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Will you guys back yeah, off? Yeah. <laughs> so, but at any rate, uh, you know, you never know. That, that's the other aspect that people don't necessarily understand about these. You never know what they're going to use. Yeah. You never know how they're going to use it. They'll ask you 500 questions, and I've been in some of these where they literally take a sentence fragment out. You know, and use like four words to. What because, but because editing is everything. On occasion, 
they will take a sentence that was regarding something else and completely change what you're saying because they cut it that way. And that's maddening. It didn't happen a lot, but it's happens. It's, it makes you angry. We really appreciate both of you being on here. It's been a lot of fun. It was great having you both at the same time because you guys are a team and uh, enjoyed all the stories and, and the insight that you've provided. Any kind of closing thoughts as we finish up here? No, I said hang in there through this. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure when society's going to open again, but hang in there. Now, the good the good news about about looking at us is that the people somehow marvel that we work together, and I tell that to people all the time. Look, if you've been with your significant other for a long period of time, there's no reason why you can't work together. For heaven's sake, we enjoy. We it's fun for yeah, us. It is fun to work together. I Although, think. yeah, we think we're we're both entertaining people, so we just entertain each other. And it's yeah, very true. So there you yes. go. <laughs> we we just laugh randomly no, throughout the just, day, don't we? Just yeah. <laughs> You actually got all three of us. You didn't know it, but but we also have Sophie the Flying Poodle here trying to climb on my head. So. Someday she won't be a poodle. She won't be a puppy anymore, but it's not coming anytime soon. <laughs> sure enjoyed all the stories, and we could probably spend two or three more hours and not even the, the end of it. Bill, did you have anything else before we run? Because we want to thank Bill for getting in touch with both of you and having you on here tonight. Appreciate it. And I definitely want to have you guys on again. So I want to talk, you know, the old Knights of the North, um, Rod Ripple, Chili Cook-Offs. And I'm really proud of both of you that you got through this whole thing without at least one quota from the producers or Blazing Saddles. So <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you guys here. And I can't wait till we can all do it again. It's been a blast. And thank you so much for... Yeah, thank you for the plug. I thank you very much for the plug. Oh, hey, if we... Oh, and if we... We enjoy it. And if we can do anything else, let us know. Thank you. All right, thanks. Well, that concludes this episode of Meet, Act, and Part. We appreciate Chris and Alice being on, and Alice's new book, Heart's Blood, will be on Amazon starting uh, April 21st, so very soon. And I encourage you to go out there and buy it, and it sounds like a, a fascinating story. We hope you tune in again to our next exciting episode. We'll see you down the road.